In the fourth episode of On The Go, we are stepping into the sphere of mobility and research. I had the honor of meeting up with Florian Lennart, who is the director of Intelligent City Forum. Intelligent City Forum is a collaboration between London School of Economics and Einerset Berlin. It is renowned for focusing on sustainable urban innovation, researching the area of smart mobility, renewable energy systems and city design. Besides that, Florian is a sought-after public speaker, and if you've seen him on stage, you know why. Currently, he's working with the European Commission and chairing an expert group tasked with drafting an implementation roadmap for smart mobility and services. Today, we're also super happy to share some news on Florian's latest work, where he is establishing a new platform called Future Lab Berlin. FutureLab Berlin will bring together a unique and international network of sustainable innovation, urban tech and mobility experts who will provide thought leadership and advisory to cities, investors, startups and the industry. Florian, welcome to On The Go. I am very happy to be sitting here with you as I've been trying to get you into the studio for a couple of weeks now. Today I will try to ask you all the questions that I have gathered during this time But we will start off with a nice and slow one, which is um, our standard go-to question. How did you get here today? Oh, well, thank you, Sigrid, uh, for having me here today. And um, uh, I came here today by public transport and walking. Very well done. You managed to escape the rain. Indeed, indeed. Uh, the underground was a good way to get to the city, <laughs> even in the rain. Perfect. As part of the Intelligent City Forum, you've been in the interchange between cities, transport providers, consumers and the rest of the bunch. Acting as part of this quite close-knitted group or network, uh, you've gained some direct insights and indirect insights. And I want to start off with a broader question. Assuming that urbanization levels are leveling out in the next 30 to 40 years, we will still have to build cities for three billion people. That means we need to build 3,000 cities the size of approximately Stockholm or Prague. That's about 100 cities a year. How will we manage this then? How can we make this transformation structural, also in terms of mobility? I think that's a very, very good and difficult question and really the challenge that um, we've been trying to investigate for a number of years. I think the main challenge that we face is, is that as the general urban population increases, the cities that we are building um, need to become much more efficient in the way we move not just people and goods through the city, but also, of course, how we supply them with energy, with water, and with some of these other resources that cities need. If we look at how we have developed cities in the 20th century, then, of course, they've been very energy intensive and have relied on, in particular, fossil fuels to power much of their operation um, their heating and, and other systems. So I think as we move forward and we want to replace fossil fuels, we want to reduce the footprint of cities in an environmental aspect and also build functioning cities that don't create other dysfunctionalities such as traffic jams and um, long um, commuting times and also unlivable spaces for people. Mm. So it's a challenge of, as you mentioned, how to house and feed and move an extra three billion people over the next 30, 40 years and finding ways to do that in a more sustainable fashion. Mm. And if we start on a small scale and move up until a larger scale, what are the measurements we can take now on a local basis and what do we need to do on a global level? 
Well, I think you always need to work from both sides of that, that equation. I think there are planetary and global problems that will require global responses and the efforts around the Paris Accords, of course, were an attempt to, to build some form of international law that says we need to work on this together. But at the same time, the actual solutions to these problems will very much be found in cities and will be developed and tested and piloted in cities. And in particular, because they are the theater of intervention If we want to effect change, if we look at GDP, 80% of GDP is generated in cities, but also 80% of global carbon emissions. So if we want to intervene and change the way we, uh, we live, then cities are, of course, a useful theater of intervention. Also, because it is really in cities that these different systems meet, where we have the interaction between social and economic systems, physical and built infrastructure systems, but also natural systems, mm. is really where they come together and where we can try to find better solutions and integrating them. And when you discuss this in the European Commission, is there a joint view on this? I mean, you're creating this roadmap now. Are you uh, meeting any obstacles or do you rather feel like people are on the same page? We want to speed this forward in quite a unified manner or, or how does it look like? Or What do people say? Of course, there are um, a whole range of policy initiatives and programs that the European Union has been pursuing for decades, really, to look at making cities more sustainable. So as we move uh, to focus a little bit more now on the issue of mobility systems and how we can replace current mobility systems, um, yes, the, the challenge is now how can we identify technological solutions that will allow us to replace the unsustainable and inefficient transportation systems that we have at the moment with new ones that are cleaner and um, provide for more livable cities. So one of the key challenges there is really overcoming the way our cities have been shaped by car mobility over the last 50 to 70 years. If we look at the car as a technological platform, in some ways you couldn't come up with something more inefficient uh, to organize <laughs> urban transportation. Yeah. It's, uh, as you will know, in mobile, 90% of the time you have one person sitting in it. And it also operates in insulated infrastructures. A moving car consumes 150 square meters of space. Mm. So cars are in themselves spatially and economically inefficient in many different ways and also do not necessarily create very livable cities. So as we move forward, we need to ask, do we just need to change the engine type? Do we need to substitute the fuel, leave everything the same? Or do we need to fundamentally rethink what type of vehicles we use and what type of technologies to yeah. move people through cities and whether using a two-ton vehicle to move a 70-kilo human payload through the city is really the most appropriate thing for the future, I think is an important question to ask. Definitely, mm -hmm. and especially with the rise of micro-mobility, who's that in many ways uh, is substituting the car for first and last mile. I think this uh, discussion is very interesting and I know that there are a few different takes on it. And clearly, as we've heard now, you are of the opinion that um, the car is sort of an outdated platform for transportation and that it's fundamentally the wrong approach to rely on it as one of the cornerstones for a mobility system. I want to step into autonomous vehicles because it is very often said that they will solve our congestion problems. However, they also add um, vehicles on the roads. When are autonomous vehicles just adding to our roadblocks and when are they actually helping us to decongest? Or are they ever? <laughs> no, I think automation can, of course, make a valuable contribution to building 
more sustainable mobility systems. But I think the key question we have to ask ourselves of a number of these technologies, and I think this is true not just for mobility but also for energy or, or other utility systems, is are we essentially just making unsustainable systems more efficient mm. but not overcoming the fact that they are basically unsustainable? To give you one example, how this can also then play out is if you look at what's happened in Germany over the last 10 years or so, we've been able to reduce the energy consumption per square meter. In uh, But at the same time, the average size of a residential lodging grew by 10%. Yeah. So this just illustrates how simple incremental attempts to just take the normal car and make it autonomous so that maybe it drives 10% more efficiently than it drives today is not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And this is where we need to evaluate these new technologies and ask, do they contribute to really transformative changes in the mobility system? And that would be real modal shift into public transport, really moving people away from individual private transportation mm-hmm. in cities into some form of shared Focus mobility. more on mass transit um, rather than individual. Exactly. And also, do they then also contribute to removing all these vehicles that are standing around in our cities taking up so much space? And and also, of course, given the fact that most of them are fossil at the moment, produce a lot of environmental mm-hmm. and health effects that, uh, that we're hearing do about today. Do you think that so. cities will allow autonomous fleets that are not electrical in the future? No, I agree. The priority, of course, has to be that we need to move people away from private motorization, need to change to electric uh, mm-hmm. transportation. And then we can ask within this new electric network mobility system, which of these um, uh, vehicles do we need to automate? Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about micro-mobility, the, the really interesting thing is, is that we can reduce the average weight of the vehicle and have a much closer ratio to the human payload. So anything on one, two, three wheels that's electric and that maybe has some kind of bubble around it or not if you mm. want to be out of the rain, I think all of those fundamentally decrease the size and speed and weight of the individual vehicle. So I think by all means we want to maintain individual mobility systems in cities, but we just want to make them more appropriate for an mm. urban environment. And if we do that, then the question becomes whether we do need to actually automate all of them. It also becomes a lot cheaper to make them electric than if we start with the traditional automobile and then figure out how much battery we need to move two tons of metal through the city rather than 70 kilos of humanity. So I think if we start thinking like this, then we can see that, of course, we need to make public transport and mass high throughput, high speed transport will definitely benefit from automation in the future. The subway in Paris already runs partly autonomous just yeah. to make it enable it to have trains stopping every 90 seconds or every 60 seconds. So I think the automation can play a role there. I think it can also play a role in providing for those individual mobility needs at the first last mile level and also for the type of shared ride sharing applications that we've seen with these shuttles that are already now also driving in Berlin and other cities. a little bit to the um, public transport network because it is such a core fundament of each city. At the same time, it has not been developed very much for the last approximately 100 years. Do you think that we will see like a mass movement in terms of developing public transport or do you think it's going to stand still as it has been doing for quite a while now? 
Well, I think it's not entirely fair to say that it hasn't moved forward. If you say that it still consists basically of light rail systems, underground systems, and some form of bus system, then indeed you're correct. We have seen some other forms of transport, like the um, sort of uh, cable cars that we see in some of the Latin American cities now being Mm -hmm. added to this. In that sense, you're right. But of course, technology has also moved forward with those systems. And it is absolutely clear that for those big mega cities and the new urban centers of the future, we will not be able to construct those without having those types of high-throughput, high-speed systems. And that inevitably will be some form of underground or rail system, be it perhaps in the future the Hyperloop as opposed to an underground, but essentially it is still an underground public transportation system. So I think we need that as a backbone always, because otherwise we simply, we do not have the the, the spatial and physical capacity to move millions of people through cities. And if you look at cities like London or Hong Kong or Singapore, all of them are now dependent already, or New York, on public transport systems. And Mm. the idea that we can simply replace that by autonomous cars is nonsense. Because it can't handle the masses. Correct. There are a few emerging markets and developing countries that are still not centered around the car, as we are in Europe and the US and in many other countries who are a little bit more industrialized. And this especially goes if you look at the continent of Africa. For them and for others, do you think that it is possible to just skip the car and go straight into mass transit or other means of transport? And if so, how would we go about this? Because you basically have a tabula rasa. How do you feel it? Of course, again, you know, I think one of the big challenges that we have globally is how we enable urbanization and economic development to proceed in those regions and how we ensure that we support them in developing the appropriate infrastructure. Uh, I think a lot of the problems that we have with mobility are often also created by wrong urban design where you might have a center where all the commercial activity is concentrated and you have residential suburbs that require people to commute in and out, thereby creating Mm. these commuting flows. So as we move forward, particularly with green sites or greenfield city development or new urban centers, it would be very important to build on some of these design strategies that we know from the 19th century. If we look at Berlin as an example, it has always aimed to mix working and living in a way that Mm. creates a number of sub-centers in the city and thereby reduces the overall commuting flows that uh, are required to bring people into the city. So I think there are some lessons to be learned from intelligent urban design from the 19th century Mm -hmm. and also from the way our ancestors 100 years ago integrated all those exciting new technologies that were just as revolutionary back then as AI and automation is today. If we think of the electrification of the city and the ability to now operate light rail, but more importantly, to operate elevators. Mm. I think there are uh, lessons we can learn. And and, and also to, of course, at the time, think about the city as an integrated system already where you might have elevators going up and trams going horizontally. So I think there are lessons to be learned. Now, Mm. specifically on Africa, I think if we look at the future and look at the next new technological wave, I think on the horizon, we see the potential for a new technology that for the first time will challenge, if you like, the wheel as a main core component of our mobility systems, and that is air mobility, and um, in particular drone-based or vertical takeoff and landing mobility for the first time will now allow people to use individual flying devices and or for us to use um, these types of drones or other flying systems for goods delivery. So that's an exciting technological development, which has many positive and negative. Especially for spaces where roads are pretty scarce. I mean, not only in Africa, but I'm from Sweden. I can imagine up in the north or if you live 
close to a mountain that it's much easier to have something delivered by drone than having a huge truck trying to do the same distance. That is correct. And I think that points to one of the interesting opportunities we have um, with air mobility is that you have the ability suddenly to separate mobility from infrastructure. And if we look at Africa specifically, it would take a long time to build a road network in Africa that provides the kind of connectivity that is needed for people and goods, mobility and economic development. And it would also mean that uh, paving Africa with all these roads would have a massive environmental impact, both in terms of emissions, but also in terms of obviously affecting the overall landscape. So if you were able to simply skip the need of a road network and provide mobility services via drone-based or air-based people and goods systems, then it has a certain attraction to it. If we look at um, the way Africa has leapfrogged straight over fixed line telephony and adopted uh, mobile telephony as the first sort of continent-wide telephone system, then there are opportunities to think about drones to play a part Mm -hmm. in Africa as well. And given that they're electric and you can charge them from renewable energy sources, at least from an emissions standpoint, that might be a positive thing. But of course, there are some negative potential associated with urban air mobility as well. Definitely, but I think it's a question that is viable not only for Africa, but uh, across a various bunch of continents and countries. But I want to I want to continue talking about this a little bit because this vision is not something new. I mean, already in the 1910s, 1920s, there was this dream of living in an electropolis where renewable energy was the primarily way that we would run our vehicles. And that was a pretty established vision, as well as trying to integrate both horizontal and vertical mobility seamlessly. This idea is century old. But not that much has happened. How do we explain this? And Florian, I also know that you are one of the people who are trying to figure out what different opportunities we could take from here and what we could actually implement. Could you just please walk me through this? I just presented you with a bunch of questions. But first of all, why are we where we are now 100 years later? And why are we not further? And how can we actually integrate air mobility with ground mobility? Well, that's a big question. I will try and uh, uh, answer that. We started soft, so now I thought I would (laughs) hit you with some of my material here. Very interestingly, we had a moment in uh, urban development at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when electrification happened, when we were dreaming of a city that was an electropolis and as you mentioned, where we had different electrical systems being integrated, be it the tram that transports you across the the street, but also the elevator as such a key innovation that probably has shaped the modern city more than even the car has. Without the elevator, again, invented at the end of the 19th century, none of the cities like New York or Hong Kong or other high-rise cities would exist because simply you wouldn't be able to transport people to the vertical. And I think this is where what we have seen in the 20th century is with the car becoming so dominant in the way our cities are also designed and operated is, is that we've now separated these different infrastructures completely from each other. And we've given up a kind of a public space in between these different systems because, as we all know, the roads sort of cut through our cities and cannot be shared by any other means of transport except for cars. So when we want to rethink the way we can move people through cities, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and, and ask how can we enable individual mobility through the city 
and how do we combine different technologies and different modes to allow for the seamless transport of people through cities. And in that context, I think we need to start thinking about the vertical and the third dimension as well. If you look at some of these big cities, particularly in Asia and these massive skyscrapers, if you look at some of the throughput of these elevator systems, they're equal to a small bus rapid transit city bus system. Mm. So already we are moving people in large quantities up and down and not just uh, horizontally. Of course, density will always be a key factor for us to continue to house all these billions of people that we need to build new cities for. So finding ways where we can combine mobility on both the horizontal and the vertical will be vital anyway. And suddenly, when we think about urban air mobility, it, of course, gives us the ability to use that airspace in cities also to move things. Um, So I think that's exciting. I think it means not just drones. It means, for instance, asking questions why do I need to sit in the train that drops me off at the street? I then need to cross the street, go into the building, and then get into an elevator. Can I not have a transportation system that takes me seamlessly, just like a roller coaster would, yeah. right into a building? A smoother so, movement. So can we connect these systems? I think it's vital. It could also be examples of wonderful designs that my friend and colleague Max Schwitaler here in Berlin is working on, which is to have essentially buildings and residential buildings where you can cycle up a kind of That's a, fantastic. A, a circular... Cycleway, um, and then create livable spaces at different levels of high-rise buildings. But, and importantly, it could also mean using drones both for to transport people and goods. And if you see what's happening at the moment technologically, this will come much quicker than we think. You can already buy in the U.S. now a hover bike, which is essentially a flying motorbike, so cool. uh, which of course is at the moment is a, a luxury sports tool, but is perfectly legal to fly around in the United States. And as you know, the dream of flying is a very strong one. So I think we need to start thinking also about how we then integrate these kind of flying vehicles into our cities. Say that we have uh, flying vehicles all over our cities in 20, 30, 40 years. Are we then just not exchanging congestion on the ground for congestion in the sky? Absolutely. I think that's the key danger, that we, again, simply just take an existing mode of transport and simply turn the car into the flying car. And that would, as you mentioned, have a whole host of negative impacts. Um, one of the key problems that isn't solved at all yet is the noise issue. A lot of these mm. quadrocopters and these drones, of course, produce quite a lot of noise. It is not trivial to reduce this rotor noise. So um, that's something that will have to be looked at. Also, obviously, having an increasing amount of flying objects in the sky does create some risks of collision and obviously accident and when things fall from the sky that could how be do we, How do something. you regulate that? So I think this is one of the key problems at the moment isn't so much technology that is almost there particularly to already fly loads of human weight as well it's also there to fly them autonomously what is not there yet is the regulation and the governance systems to in some sense frame these activities mm. so we don't know yet how to integrate drones fully into existing air transport and air traffic control systems most likely we will need autonomous systems in order to organize the urban airspace and not rely on human piloting um, mm. because that might be very difficult and 
you can't have traffic lights in the sky if you that like. That would be a bit hot. <laughs> so uh, people are working very actively at autonomous systems, and that throws up all the same liability and ethical responsibility issues that autonomous driving also throws up because then the question becomes who's, okay. who's to blame for any potential risks. So yes, I think the future, particularly in urban centers, is probably not that we use drones and air-based mobility systems as, as a core component, but that they can complement functions and also provide a number of, for instance, emergency services, transporting blood, as is already happening in cities or other urgent medical deliveries. Yeah. And, of course, in rural areas, in countries like Rwanda, already you see sophisticated drone networks that can now reach every part of the country in 15 minutes to deliver vital medical supplies. And also finding people for ambulances, for example. I mean, if you don't have an address, how do you know where an ambulance should stop? But uh, if you have a service like, what, three words or something similar, then you can have a drone coming to your exact spot and that drone can send a signal to an ambulance, etc., etc. So there's a lot of good things coming out of air-based technology. Absolutely. I think as sensor platforms, they allow us to do a lot of exciting things from all kinds of emergency. I'm only commenting on the civil uses here. I mean, <laughs> of course, they can be used for policing and military and surveillance purposes, but of course, they can help us spot forest fires. They can help us make agriculture more precise. They're now being applied in search and rescue systems on coastlines. They can also provide all kinds of other environmental information. So I think that's a very mature technology. And the really interesting question is, can we now start using them for bigger loads and that includes both moving people and or goods of let's say more than two three four hundred kilograms and i think then throws up very interesting solutions for instance also for as you say rural areas where if you simply don't have a road network there's often no alternative than to fly and so what you're replacing is essentially a helicopter that's very expensive we have a number of really valid use cases, whether or not the idea that instead of the car, we all now fly with a personal air shuttle, I think is a second question. I don't see the prime application there, but I think Let's there see. are. Time will tell. We will tell. As I said, people <laughs> will want to fly. So I think the question isn't so much do we want it or not, as how we deal with it is probably our yeah. challenge. Another challenge when it comes to fostering sustainable and attractive cities is how we physically organize our space. And it is also one of the most effective levers of how we can affect mobility. Can you give me some concrete examples of how infrastructure and urban planning, since you've been working a lot with that in your previous work and in your current work, how it can have a positive effect on mobility and why the city is the right place for this theater of intervention, as you previously stated? It's no accident that we have evolved cities because they allow us to efficiently organize some of our economic activities. A lot of research shows that the concentration of talents, but also the, the concentrated availability of diversified skills and the ability of cities to both import and export large amounts of resources, of course, helps economic development and was a key driver of industrialization, if you will. I think cities will always exist and they have social and cultural reasons, but also, of course, they have already always been built where um, we were able to use natural features to bring goods into the cities where it was easy to cross rivers and where it was easy, for instance, to then also have access to water and dispose of our waste. Um, I think cities, in some sense, um, have already evolved into highly technologically advanced life support systems for humans. Mm. And then the question is, is how we now reconfigure those existing systems and make them more efficient. And that probably means several things. One of them means that we need to think about 
about not having insulated infrastructures that serve just one purpose. Mm. I think the key aspects of the smart city idea, and I prefer to call it intelligent city, no. is that we have to <laughs> think more intelligently about how we run things like energy systems, water systems, mobility systems, waste systems, and look how we can connect them and also create these circular economy solutions. To give you a very practical example, 60% of the rubbish trucks in Berlin are driven by biogas that's produced from the waste that they collect. Mm -hmm. um, and so there we've integrated an, an energy and mobility and the waste management system in, in a circular fashion. And I think that we need to look at more of this. We also need to look at things like gaining heat from wastewater, which is another project here in Berlin with several different places. And so it becomes about how we link these sectors. And in German, we call it Sektorkopplung or sector <laughs> coupling in a way that we increase the efficiencies of how we operate energy and utility systems in a geometric way rather than just in an incremental way. I think it also means that we need to think more radically about how we design cities, as you say, mm -hmm. in terms of the spatial layout. And at the moment, I think we've built cities that are optimized to move metal boxes around, mm -hmm. but not necessarily people. So if we think again and look at the real challenges, how we create user-centric mobility systems, how mm -hmm. do I get out of my house and to where I want to go, not how do I get to my car and how does my car get to where mm -hmm. I want to go, I think allows us to think much more flexible about the use of urban space. And I think a key component of that will have to be that we need to bring back into the city some form of working and producing to be coexist with residential functions. Yeah, and it's you, this mix of functions, I think, yeah. that, that's vital. And you mentioned that um, briefly earlier when you gave an example of how in the 19th, beginning of 20th century, this was done in Berlin, quite nicely done, where you had spaces where you combine working and living But you didn't really develop how they looked like. So what can we learn from that era where these metal boxes were still not as common? And what can we take based on the learnings of history into the future or even into our planning today? Like what made that urban planning so good? I think because it attempted to create public space at a human scale. And so it was designed to produce spaces where different forms of mobility could coexist, whether it's walking or horses or other forms of cycling at the time. So I think it's that human dimension that you see particularly in the European city. And that's why I think a lot of European cities are considered so livable is mm. because of the way we have layouts and public spaces that are not solely dominated by the car. The way technology was in integrated at the time, and if we look at how the light rail and the electric train system was integrated here in Berlin at the turn of the century, part of that enabled urban development and part of that was then used to really create very, very nice neighborhoods. If you go to Victoria Luise Platz here mm. in Schoenebach, yeah, um, if you look at it now, it's a wonderful urban square. But really what was there first was the underground station and that square was sort of built uh -huh. uh, around the underground station. So it's a prime example of how you can use brand new modern technology but create wonderful spaces that 120 years later um, still is still functioning and highly desirable. Mm. So I think that's, those are the lessons we can learn of um, and I think that requires having public space that's um, of a human scale that allows different forms of human mobility to interact. So if we get rid of the calm, reduce the speed and the weight and the size of our urban personal mobility systems mm. and vehicles then we can coexist with cyclists and pedestrians and others and we free up all this urban space that we use for parking cars for other economic functions. And I think that might also then allow us to rethink 
with modern technology about how we can decentralize production. If you look at the maker scene, if you look at the opportunities for additive manufacturing and 3D printing now, where, of course, you can make locally very sophisticated uh, and uh, rents, tools. I'm thinking, because since there's living space in the cities, as of now, are quite restricted. So obviously the rents over the years will go up, but say that you free up a lot of space that has previously been reserved for cars or activities related to cars, as in parking or whatnot, then you have so much land space where you can actually build new housing in the city centers. Absolutely correct. And I think this is partly driving also now this Uh, 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 this mobility evolution because people are reconsidering their quality of life in cities. I mean, it starts with whether I want to own and pay taxes and have to worry about parking with my own car to the question of why is that space not available to me and if only 30% of people use a car on a daily basis, why is 80% of the public space reserved for cars? I think those questions of spatial equity are being asked and as you mentioned also, these cars not just stand there and block the road but they rapidly depreciate. Mm. So you have basically blocked the economic use of a lot of land for free for an asset that is depreciating, which makes no economic sense whatsoever if you look at it. So Definitely. I agree there's many different ways we could put that space to use. What does the OEMs say when you present this idea? Have you talked to them about it? Well, um, sorry for I'm, everyone, uh, OEMs is a car producers. We are in regular dialogue with car producers. I think they can see changing behavior and, and, and on a generational level, and it's evidence around the world that millennials and even the generations before them started being less interested in the car as a status symbol. The mm. smartphone is far more important now <laughs> in terms of than a car. Or your sneakers. Cars are also, you know, fossil cars certainly are, are, are beginning to be like cigarettes. Sort of people are a bit guilty about using them. And so I think there's a cultural change there. And in terms of the air pollution issues, I think the fossil car is definitely on its way out of cities. And I think all the car makers understand that. They all also understand that uh, the fossil car in general is on its way out. I think there's disagreement about how quickly and with what technology system it should be replaced by. And of course, industry has this fundamental challenge that if you actually don't build two-ton highly complex uh, combustion engines, then what is it that you're contributing to the product innovation? Mm -hmm. So how they position themselves in terms of providing shared mobility, electric mobility, and micro-mobility, I think is interesting to see. I think they're all taking interest in that. But at the moment, we also have to say that while we talk so much about this new mobility world, the reality, of course, is different, mm. is that we're selling ever more fossil cars that are ever bigger to ever more people on the planet. So it's important to note that uh, we're not even close to replacing fossil mobility or private mobility, mm. but that this is an, a perspective that would allow us to rethink mobility systems in cities. The fight is not won yet. I think that people <laughs> understand that it will happen. I think that yeah. people understand it will go electric. But again, the data at the moment points in a different direction. Speaking of the car as a status symbol, and also noting the fact that in some countries it's not a status symbol anymore, it's switched to other things or other experiences, if you want to put it that way. Do you think that for markets who are sort of on the threshold of stepping into this car craze versus maybe leaning back a little bit and not doing it, that we can shift the impression of the car as a status symbol into something else? 
as in going green or instead of having your own car, you have a super premium subscription to all the different types of mobility given in a city, that that becomes the status symbol instead? Or is that just wishful green thinking? No, I don't think it is. I think that if you actually interview people, if you do really extensive social research on people's attitudes to this, then it's absolutely clear that you have a great majority of people, and we did this for London and Berlin, where at least um, I'd say about 80% different groups said that if you were to provide them with a better and more sustainable form of transport than the private fossil car, they'd be very happy to look at it. So I think the question is that we need to find ways and develop systems and services that are more attractive to people than the current systems. So we need to come up with the right kind of products and systems and services that make it easy for people to switch. And the example that you gave of of an integrated or subscription-based mobility ticket, um, I think, is a very good one. We piloted this in Berlin about five, six years ago to essentially give people a um, subscription-based monthly flat fee service that included the car sharing, the bike sharing, the public transport, and uh, some rail deduction, and then looked whether people were willing to give up their car for the time being and use this ticket um, instead. And And how did it go? We had some very positive feedback from that, and I think that um, a number of cities have now adopted similar um, systems and service offerings, and I think some of this is product innovation Mm. uh, in terms of public transport. So I think that, again, yes, people realize, well, this is much easier for me. I only need to pick up the car when I really need one, and I need to take the kids to yeah. Ikea, but I don't need to have a park uh, standing outside my house or even use it Monday to Friday. No. Um, and so I think it's a lot of this has to do with offering people more attractive offerings and mm. overcoming this weird separation between public and private mobility systems. Yeah. I think we will always want to subsidize and make sure that everyone has the equal access to mobility. Mm. But I think maybe a bus can also be something else and maybe we can combine little individual mobility mm. devices to also operate as collective devices. We can be much more creative about how Definitely. we organize that. And I mean, that's also something that we over at Traffic try to do when we connect all different types of mobility into one service. And earlier this year, we started collaborating with Lyft and we are integrating public transit into their application. And what they could see after integrating various forms of new mobility into the normal ride-hailing app was the number of people who chose to drive by car decreased. But the overall interaction with the app absolutely skyrocketed, which sort of begs to question the the very sort of fundamental notion of that everyone loves to be in a car and everyone would prefer that over anything else. It's just simply not true anymore. I agree. And I think if you look at most European cities, car-based transport is a minority already in terms of the mode share. Mm. In Berlin, I think 50% of households have cars, so 50% don't, but only 30% use them for daily transport. So I think, in essence, you already have a majority of people who use public transport walking or cycling, and for a whole number of different motivations, freedom, Mm. cost, greenness. um, I think there's different Mm. reasons why people choose that. So I think, actually, the cultural change in cities is not that far off. I think people also understand that we can't have these diesel fumes poisoning Mm. us. So I think a lot of that fight is being won in cities, but I think we still need to make sure that we offer people attractive alternatives, and I think that means also making them feel that 
their uh, that their journey becomes seamless. And I think this is where, of course, mobility information portals like Trafia can help become a sort of a one-stop shop for individuals who need to navigate through the city and may change modes, but don't want to have the disruption of the changing of that mode. So how do we organize that spatially? So it's so easy to go from your bike into a tram, from a tram into some form of ride-sharing taxi. Um, exactly, but also being able to offer that as one solution, because people are so tired of jumping from app to app to app. I mean, only if you look at micromobility in any given capital in Europe, you will have maybe five, six, seven, eight, ten different bike operators. It's absolutely ridiculous that you would jump from ten different apps just to step on a bike. I mean, if you could just integrate into one solution, it doesn't have to be the traffic one, but it could be a citywide one, it could be one which is operated by someone who already has a lot of reach, like a taxi company or an OEM and or whatnot. But say that you had one solution fits all, then you would remove so much hustle for people just trying to move around smoothly, conveniently and without having to think and make decisions by themselves all the time. No, absolutely correct. And I think this has uh, been something that has been more difficult to achieve than uh, the individual services that we all see. I think um, this is something that cities are beginning to look at intensely because it's becoming abundantly clear that we need to create something digital public infrastructure and digital public transport where mm -hmm. perhaps the city's role isn't so much in providing all of that but in creating the kind of framework that regulates who can use the city space for what form of mobility services mm -hmm. at what type of prices and access conditions. So I believe that this is a, an important role for cities to create these types of, I would call it a utility or white label platforms that allow both public and private providers to actually offer their services but within an integrated and regulated system. I think Precisely. we need to be very careful that we don't, uh, in the end, create um, new services that actually make it easier and cheaper and more attractive for people to use cars and cities, which is a little bit what shared car mobility has done in many cities around Europe. Whether we really need all these car-sharing cars that have been dumped into the center of Berlin, I personally doubt it. I think it's very well connected by other means. And if you look at London, we have 70,000 or more cars circulating around looking for, for rides. Um, so that is not part of the solution. That's part of the problem. Yeah. And so I think... Um, how do you think the city can then incentivize besides having an integrated system where you can plan your travel seamlessly and you just have to use the city platform or whatever you choose, how can the city then or regulators incentivize that you as an individual choose a mode of transportation which is sustainable and environmentally friendly above something which is not, as in ride hailing or um, taking a car sharing? Or it's going to be a combination of measures. It's going to be regulation, it's going to be taxation, and it's going to be pricing. I think one of the key issues that we need to resolve is that at the moment, a lot of us are subsidizing the use of public space by cars. If you look at the overall cost for fossil car-based transportation and the infrastructure that has to be maintained and the health costs that come from it, of course, that is a huge cost. And it's not entirely clear why that should be borne by everyone. So I think, of course, what you would do is you would restrict, either by regulation or pricing, the access of inefficient vehicles like uh, fossil cars or cars for private use in cities. Mm. And you may also do it for health reasons, as we're already seeing. So I think 
it's pretty clear that over time, cities will slowly remove the private car from cities. I think that's clear, not just the fossil, but I think over time that will be, at least for city centers, the solution by a variety of means. The other one, as I mentioned, will have to be by providing people with more attractive other solutions. And that's where modern technology, not just in terms of web-based solutions, but also in terms of uh, the kind of big data applications that we are not capable of. And of course, the kind of uh, seamless connectivity that we all now have by our smartphones, mm. of course, allow us to now look at actually creating travel chains for individuals in real time and combining them with whatever mode is available and efficient pathway. But I do think that will mean that cities will have to also prioritize and say, if you want to use our public space, you can do so if you're under a certain speed, under a certain Mm -hmm. weight, and you have zero emissions. If not, you cannot use the streets. And I think that's probably the mixture of governance and pricing that we will need to see. Uh, I think we will Personally, I think drastically increase fuel prices and parking prices. It's politically difficult, mm. but it would be more honest because it would then cover the actual externalities that we're having to pay for at the moment from the health costs and environmental costs of fossil transportation. Definitely. Florian, this conversation has been incredibly interesting. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I will ask you a final question before we round up. If you tune into On The Go in a few weeks... Who would you love to hear? I think you should uh, uh, try and talk to Mr. Kent Larson at the MIT Media Lab. Could you make an introduction? I'd be very happy to make an introduction to you. Perfect. Um, Alternatively, um, I think you might also want to talk to Frank Wernicke from Drone Masters here in Berlin. And I'm also happy to make an introduction to that. Florian, I'm so glad that I managed to pin you down and that you took the time to come all the way from London to join on the go. Don't forget to subscribe to On The Go on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or where you usually listen to your podcasts. And if you're tuning into On The Go while you're on the streets, please be careful in the winter traffic. It is a slippery slope out there. Unlike a few lucky ones, we are not stepping into the holidays just yet. We have a few more episodes coming up before we head into the next year. So stay tuned for our next oh-so-mobile guests. Thank you very much for listening.